Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 170, Pulling Away from the Competition. Hi, I'm Neil. Each year, Apple holds its developers conference, WWDC. This is a software event. Sure, there may be some new hardware from time to time, but the focus is on software. And because software plays such a key role in the user experiences found with Apple devices, one way I think about WWDC is it gives us a sneak peek, an early look at where Apple wants to bring the user experience over the next 12 months and even beyond. Very often to reach a certain destination, you need pit stops along the way. You need stepping stones. This means some of the announcements one year will end up playing a big role in the announcements the following year. Despite being in the middle of a pandemic, Apple went forward with its developers conference last week. It was completely virtual. There were no in-person events. For the second year in a row, Apple held a developers conference that should frighten its competitors. Relying on a near maniacal obsession with the user experience, Apple is removing oxygen from every market that it plays in. At the same time, when you take a look at the broader tech landscape, it's riddled with bad bets, indifference, and a lack of vision. In today's episode, we are going to discuss how Apple is pulling away from the competition to a degree that we haven't ever seen before. Given how we are just now entering the wearables era, implications of this shift will be measured in the coming decades, not just years. We will jump into this discussion by talking a little bit about last week's WWDC. One thing that kept coming to mind was how Apple was doing all of this in the middle of a pandemic. Go back a few months, there were serious questions as to whether Apple would be able to put all of this together. You had California in a stay-at-home directive, plenty of travel restrictions. It was not exactly an easy environment to put together a developer's conference, even if it was all virtual. It speaks volumes that Apple held its strongest WWDC in years during the middle of a pandemic, while two of its largest competitors, Google and Facebook, decided to skip their annual developer's conferences altogether. Just a few years ago, fortunes were reversed. Apple is coming under fire for WWDCs that appeared to be more reactionary to Google, Facebook, and even Samsung. We then had Apple struggling to contain growing unrest among its pro-users. This group was increasingly tempted by Microsoft Surface hardware. So leading up to the past few WWDCs, that was the theme. That was the main talking point. How is Apple going to respond to its largest competitors? What changed? What was it about these last two WWDCs that made them stand out? I think there were two reasons. The first was a revised Apple product strategy. And the second is that Apple doubled down on its unique interpretation of innovation. It's worth going over each one in a little bit more detail. Over at AboveAvalon.com in this week's article titled Apple's Pulling Away from the Competition, in Exhibit 1, 
I depict Apple's changing product strategy, one from a pull strategy to a push strategy. We went over this strategy shift in much more detail back in episode 149, titled Letting Go of the Rope. I will include a link to that episode in the show notes. If you didn't listen to that episode, I would actually recommend maybe pausing this episode, going back to episode 149, getting all of the details. In today's episode, we are going to go over it very quickly. A few years ago, Apple was most aggressive with products capable of making technology more relevant and personal. We're talking about the iPhone and the Apple Watch. Another way of saying this is that these products allowed people to get more out of technology without having technology take over their lives. In this pool strategy, the Apple Watch and iPhone were Apple's clear priorities. Meanwhile, the iPad, Mac Portables, and Mac desktops ended up facing a battle for management attention, as if they were located at the end of the rope that Apple management was pulling. And so in Exhibit 1 at the very top, you can sort of see this being depicted, where the iPhone and Apple Watch, they're under control. They're very close to the end of the rope that Apple management is holding, and you're seeing a lot of attention, a lot of focus going on those products. Then at the end of the rope, things are pretty crazy. Things are flopping all over the place. In some ways, the Mac represented more like dead weight. Success maybe was defined as just not being completely left behind. Apple changed from a pull strategy in which some products like the iPad and Mac seem to be having a hard time keeping up to a push strategy characterized by every major product category moving forward simultaneously. It is important to note this is not a new development. This is not like Apple just changed strategies last month or last week. Actually, this shift appears to have been born in 2017. It took a few years for us to see the initial fruit of this effort. I think it became visible last year, WWDC 2019, and it was visible once again last week. The iPad and Mac product categories have benefited the most from this revised push product strategy with more frequent and noteworthy updates. The second reason why the past two WWDCs have stood out has to do with innovation. During his opening remarks at the iPhone and Apple Watch event last September, Tim Cook said that Apple sells tools containing, quote, innovations that enrich people's lives to help them learn, create, work, play, share, and stay healthy, end quote. It was such a crucial line, not just for that product event, but for what Apple is doing. Instead of defining innovation as either being first or doing something different, Apple looks at innovation as something that improves customers' lives. One consequence of this has been software and hardware releases that have prioritized feature quality over quantity. Each year, I track the length of WWDC and how much stage time Apple gives to each major product category. This year's WWDC came in a full 20% shorter than previous keynotes. Now, yes, having a digital format helps cut down on timing, such as quicker transitions, 
There was no clapping. But there were also fewer new features announced. The thing is, the features that were announced contain more significance when it comes to pushing the user experience forward. Unfortunately for Apple competitors, the combination of a revised product strategy and a unique definition of innovation didn't just make for strong WWDC keynotes. Consumers are noticing and wanting what Apple is selling. There are a number of data points that back that claim up. We can look at the iPhone. Apple hasn't just held its own in the smartphone space, but rather is continuing to take share from Android. Of all the major smartphone manufacturers, Apple saw the largest sales share increase in the smartphone industry last quarter, and that was during a pandemic. There's the iPad. Apple's adding approximately 20 million new iPad users per year, and that's despite the iPad being 10 years old and already having an install base exceeding 300 million users. There's the Mac. Apple's oldest major product category is still adding 10 million new users per year. With wearables, Apple Watch and AirPods are quickly approaching 100 million user bases each. Then we have the huge bucket of services. Apple users are paying for 518 million subscriptions across Apple's platforms. That's up 126 million in just a year. By the way, I do go over each one of those data points and estimates in greater detail in daily updates that are sent to above Avala members. I will include links to those in the show notes. And I've said this in the past, but I do think it's important to go over again in this episode. Whenever I talk about a financial estimate regarding Apple, it could be iPhone unit sales, the Apple Watch install base, various things regarding Apple services, those estimates are coming from me. They're coming from the work I've done in terms of financial modeling. If I'm relying on someone else for an estimate, and I can't really think of an example when it comes specifically to Apple, I will make note of that. I will mention that this is from so-and-so. And I think that's important. I don't want to just talk about numbers and estimates. I want to be able to have the opportunity for people to get a little bit more information on how I'm deriving those estimates. Sometimes maybe that discussion is found in these podcast episodes. It may be found in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com. Most of the time it's found in the daily updates because I think that makes the most sense. I think that is the best medium for that. All of those preceding data points, iPhone sales share, new iPad, Mac users, Apple Watch, AirPods momentum, the number of Apple subscriptions, they amount to an Apple ecosystem gaining momentum. A different way of highlighting Apple's growing ecosystem over the past 10 years is to look at the number of people using at least one Apple device. Exhibit 2 in this week's article over at AboveAvalon.com has my estimates for each year going back to 2009 for the Apple install base, and you'll be able to see the significant growth, especially from 2011 all the way to pretty much 2017. Apple's install base recently surpassed a billion users. While new user growth rates have slowed, Apple's still bringing tens of millions of users into the fold. Due to Apple's views regarding innovation and its focus on the user experience, once someone enters the Apple ecosystem, odds are good that customer will remain in the ecosystem. This is why one sub-theme from last week's WWDC keynote flew under the radar. 
It's not just about Apple pushing multiple product categories forward at the same time. Instead, it's about adding cohesiveness and commonality between product categories. Apple is making it easier for people to buy multiple Apple devices. As users move deeper into the Apple ecosystem, satisfaction and loyalty rates stand to go even higher. The end result is that Apple's billion users aren't just any billion users. Instead, they are a billion users less likely to use non-Apple devices and services going forward. For the competition, this is a highly concerning development. But there's something that's even more worrying for competitors. Apple is still in the early stages of bringing its users deeper into the ecosystem. According to my estimate, approximately 50% of Apple users still own just one Apple device, an iPhone. This group serves as a prime market for products like the iPad, Apple Watch, wireless AirPods, and various Apple services. In a few years, that percentage of Apple users still owning just one Apple device may decline to something more like 30%. Such a development will remove much of the remaining oxygen from the markets Apple plays in. So far in this discussion, we've talked about how Apple is gaining strength. Apple's sailing forward with a strengthening ecosystem made possible by a clear product vision in a functioning organizational structure that prioritizes design, another way of saying the user experience. What we're going to do now is focus on the competition. Because while Apple is gaining strength, the competition is rudderless. Apple competitors have been striking out with one bad product bet after another. Few have long-term vision as to where computing is headed. Consider the following events, developments, and observations when it comes to Apple competitors. And by no means is this an inclusive list. We could start with Samsung. Here is a company that remains rudderless from a product vision perspective. With no clear direction as to where to go, Samsung is aimlessly launching new products and features for no other reason than to say they are first. The strategy is no different than throwing things against the wall and hoping something sticks. Even worse, the products and features that Samsung is announcing aren't even ready for public usage. Google. Here we have a company that's prioritizing technology over design. New software features may seem compelling on paper, but the lack of attention given to the user experience quickly becomes apparent. It's also becoming difficult to miss the growing enthusiasm gap between Android and iOS. And the hardware front, Google is struggling to match its efforts there with its ambient computing future, something which I still don't think makes any sense. Amazon's massive bet on voice with Alexa and Echo was the wrong one. The stationary smart speaker space was a mirage. Amazon should have instead bet on wearables with voice as a user input. The thing is, Amazon doesn't have the corporate culture to excel with computers worn on the body. 
Microsoft appears to be running into growing trouble with the consumer when it comes to Surface. What had been a genuine chance to rip into the iPad and Mac stronghold due to the growing user unrest looks to have been successfully crushed by Apple. When you look at Microsoft Surface revenue, things may seem fine. But I think what's happening here is that that revenue is increasingly being driven by commercial clients. So Microsoft has taken share from its OEMs rather than Apple. That is a concerning development for Microsoft as they were looking to expand their first-party hardware line, move into smartphones, move into wearables. I think that strategy is looking increasingly questionable. We could turn to Facebook. Here's a company that ended up placing the wrong social bet. Instead of going after our closest social network, Facebook evolved to offer a curated version of the web via the news feed. Facebook's pivot back to a privacy-focused social platform built around messaging emphasizes this wrong bet. A message sent through Apple's messages is a message not sent through a Facebook property. Snap, the company considered to have the best odds of competing with Apple when it comes to augmented reality, botched its first major foray into AR hardware spectacles. The company has backed itself in a corner by management's refusal and then failure to appeal to older demographics. This will serve as a major headwind for the company when it comes to mass market AR success. Spotify weren't able to prevent Apple Music from gaining critical mass despite Apple Music not having a free tier. We see a similar dynamic with Netflix being unable to stop new entrants into paid video streaming from gaining traction. This ends up diffusing near-universal praise in the press for first movers. For an industry that was expected to put Apple in its place, that sure is a lot of fails, flops, and disappointments. When looking outside the U.S., the overall picture isn't dramatically different. While some companies still have pockets of strength where Apple is not a major player, in geographies Apple is playing in, the company continues to see growing ecosystem momentum while the competition flounders. We can look at the number of paid subscriptions being run through Apple's platform. That points to increased services and app adoption outside the U.S. We can look at China and the never-ending tales of Apple being crushed by the local competition. In reality, Apple is seeing existing users move deeper into the Apple ecosystem. We can look at the App Store, iPad, and wearables momentum. Huawei struggles in Europe appear to be benefiting Apple at the premium end of the market. If there is still doubt about Apple's momentum in the marketplace, one doesn't need to look any further than the dramatic change in narrative facing Apple in the press. For years, Apple was positioned as one iPhone update away from implosion. We saw low market share and sales share being paraded around as signs of an incompetent product strategy. A management team that's lost its touch. Simply put, Apple was framed as being weak and vulnerable, dependent on revenue sources that could disappear overnight due to consumers fleeing to the competition. The narrative has completely shifted. The press is now infatuated with Apple's power, its ironclad grip over the App Store, and the idea that Apple users are stuck or imprisoned in a massive walled garden where things like iMessage, Apple Watches, 
and AirPods force people to remain within Apple's walls. Government regulators are viewed as the only entity capable of protecting Apple users from Apple. If competitors actually believe this narrative, they are setting themselves for more failure. Thinking that Apple users are somehow being forced against their will to buy products like Apple Watches and AirPods is nothing more than looking for someone to blame for market failures when the problem is found internally with a bad vision, inadequate corporate culture, and lack of understanding as to what makes Apple unique. On a list of risk factors facing Apple, greater regulation is far from the top. The same can be said about things like App Store policies, employee retention. While these items may make for juicy headlines capable of grabbing people's attention, they won't play a major role in Apple's future. The topic of Apple and regulation can certainly receive its own episode, but one thing I would point out is that of those who have been most vocal about Apple and regulation, they don't view alternatives in the marketplace as viable. So for example, Android is said not to be a viable alternative to iOS. I think that's fascinating. In many ways, that only ends up emphasizing our discussion today. It only supports what we've been talking about. You have an alternative in the marketplace, but apparently it is so bad, it is so poor, that they don't think anyone in iOS would actually want to move to that ecosystem. That says something. And it doesn't have to do with regulation. So it has to do with who has vision. Who is connecting with consumers more? Is there such a thing as having a monopoly on a premium experience? Apple is where it is today by saying no more than yes. By remaining focused on making technology more personal, which is inherently about using a design-led culture to push the user experience, Apple is able to develop a dynamic yet nimble ecosystem of tools that people are willing to pay for. If it were to lose focus, Apple would move that much closer to its competitors. Apple ends up being its toughest competitor as it releases products that surpass the previous version. This is where betting on the user experience and taking a unique stance on innovation is critical. The final topic that we will cover today has to do with looking ahead. When the iPhone was unveiled in 2007, Steve Jobs claimed that Apple had a five-year head start against the competition. He ended up being mostly right. By 2012, Samsung and Google were shipping credible iPhone alternatives, thanks partially to ruthless copying that led to time in the courtroom. With wearables, my thinking has been that Apple has a lead as closer to 10 years. This estimate reflects not just software or hardware advantages, but also the byproduct of Apple controlling both items and its resulting achievements with custom silicon. As time passes, Apple has been facing less competition in wearables. This is remarkable, considering how Apple Watch has already ushered in the next paradigm shift in computing. We are seeing the future today. Yet most companies either don't see it, or even worse, see it but are unable to respond. Giving Apple a 10-year head start against the competition with wearables may end up giving too much credit to the competition. Excelling in wearables requires a corporate culture 
product development process, and business model that few companies other than Apple possess. In many ways, Apple was built to excel in wearables. Apple should probably get used to being its own toughest competitor. That's going to do it for today's episode. One quick programming note. Last week, I did publish my full review of Apple's WWDC. This was a 6,800-word review that went over everything from what I thought were the major takeaways to my full notes and the granular takeaways, and 39 different topics were covered. My WWDC review is available exclusively to Above Avalon members. If you currently are not an Above Avalon member and you would like to read the review, just head on over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two sign-up forms available. Membership is either $20 per month or $200 per year. The cornerstone of Above Avalon membership is access to my exclusive daily updates all about Apple. These daily updates are emails, so they're sent directly into your inbox throughout the week. Each one is about 2,000 words and covers everything that I think matters in the world of Apple. A key component of my analysis is continuous coverage of all of the markets that Apple plays in. That includes what's taking place in terms of competition. So this episode really was made possible by covering Apple competitors for years. One thing that I do differently from many other sites, many other publications, is that I will begin with Apple and then analyze an industry or focus on a competitor. Many people do it the other way around. They'll first focus on an industry, and then they just treat Apple as any other competitor. And what that ends up doing is ignoring the unique attributes of Apple. Instead, you try to kind of put them in a certain cookie-cutter position, and I think that's faulty. I think you end up missing what Apple really is all about and what Apple is trying to do. If you enjoy the analysis and perspective found in these podcast episodes and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com, I'm confident you will enjoy the analysis that is found in these daily updates. In addition to the sign-up forms, the membership page over at AboveAvalon.com also contains the full list of member privileges and benefits, as well as answers to frequently asked questions when it comes to membership. There are also a few sample daily updates there, so you can get a feel for what a daily update is like. I'm proud to say that Above Avalon is fully sustained by memberships. If you are currently an Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you are planning on becoming an Above Avalon member, I will give you a very early welcome and a thank you in advance. If you enjoy listening to the Above Avalon podcast, if you can leave a rating or review for the podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. In Apple's podcast app, if you go to the Above Avalon page and then scroll down, you'll then see the ratings and review section. Along with sharing episodes, leaving a rating or review also helps in terms of getting the word of mouth out there and introducing Above Avalon to new listeners. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later. Bye.